Hi, it's Jackie, and we're in our Lime Green series, Reshaping Our View of Women. I used to think those teachings that we have that restrict and limit women, I, I thought that those teachings were based on the Bible until I realized they weren't. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. In this series, we've been talking about how the conservative church teaches us women to be this ideal biblical woman. We've heard the sermons. We're supposed to be gentle and quiet in spirit, to submit, to not lead or teach men. There are Bible verses to prove it. When I heard those teachings being taught, the ones that restrict and limit us, I used to think it was because these people based their teaching, their beliefs, on the Bible, until I realized that wasn't exactly the whole story. It was also based on social constructs about sex and power, gender bias, constructs. That's what I want to talk about today. Gender bias, constructs. Don't worry, we're going to get to sex and power too. When I was hired on a church staff, I kept tripping over these things. I didn't know at the time that they were gender bias or gender constructs. I just knew I kept tripping over something. Something was making us all uncomfortable. That's what happens when we women move into traditional male spaces or we take on or have uh, what was considered traditional male characteristics. We trip. We aren't even sure why. We aren't even sure how it's happening, but we know we've tripped. I remember um, when I attended a class at seminary, it was Acts and Pauline Epistles. Yes, we studied for a whole semester the book of Acts and Pauline's Epistles. It was so awesome. And I happened to be taking this class with one of my colleagues that I worked with at our church. I'll call him Bill. That's not his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But one day when we were in class, the prof gave us this assignment. He said, I want you to go home and figure out why Paul asked Timothy to bring him his cloak. It's in 2 Timothy 4, 13, in case you want to do the research. The next day I came in and the prof asked, who's got the answer? Several guys raised their hand. Nope, that wasn't it. Nope, that wasn't it. I leaned over and told Bill my answer. Turns out I was right. The interesting thing is later that day, Bill went back to church and he went to my husband's office. By the way, you need to know my husband was also in seminary at the time. And Bill went to my husband's office and he asked him if he had given me the answer to the question. Yes, you heard that. He asked if Steve had given me the answer. And I was really taken back by that when Steve shared that with me. Like, did he really think I couldn't come up with that? Did he really think that women can't think on the same level as men when it comes to theology and Bible? Well, yes, in fact, that's exactly what he thought. Not a new thought, by the way. St. Augustine said that women are weak and fickle and that our minds are only able to handle the things of lower things in life. 
Bill had no idea, idea, but he had that gender bias. He had that gender construct in his brain. And there I was sitting in the class with the answer, and it wasn't fitting. And then there's my friend Lori, who was a CFO of a multi-million dollar company. Only woman on our team, the lead team. She's in a board meeting, and a man comes in and obviously doesn't know who she is because he handed her a legal pad so that she could take notes because, of course, being the only woman in the room, she must have been the secretary. Boy, don't you think he had a bad day at work that day. And then there's my friend Linda, not her name either, who served on the board of a, of a Christian nonprofit. She's the only woman in the boardroom, and she brings up concerns about the president's behavior, and she gets dismissed because, well, maybe you don't know this, but there is this gender bias that women's testimonies, their thinking, they're bringing something that tends to be less reliable and competent even though my friend Linda had graduated from Harvard Business School. By the way, turns out she was right about the guy. He was doing some bad stuff. The point is, there are these gender bias, gender constructs, and we trip over them all the time. And we know something's not quite right, but we aren't sure what. In 2002, I was hired onto our church to be the teaching pastor to women. And at that time, I think I was the only woman in the conservative evangelical world in America that held that title. Boy, to call a woman a pastor, let alone a teaching pastor. Teaching pastor is a title we give male preachers in megachurches. And I will never forget my first pastoral staff meeting. It was on a Monday. That's when we had our meetings. And the tables were in a square formation, so you can see it, right? And everybody's eating lunch, and they're laughing and having fun. And then it gets time for us to get to work. And shortly after we get to work, this conversation ensues between two pastors with really strong personalities. If we had to give them a color, I'd say they're bright red. Both of them were known to be snarky men who could be, you know, like verbally put you in your place. I felt right at home. And I was sitting there listening to them go on and on and on while I'm typing on my computer. And suddenly, one of them said something that I thought was wrong. I said, wait a minute, hold on. In the same intensity, with the same tone, I say, that's not right. And suddenly, heads tilted and silence. You know what I mean, right? This awkward pause. No one's saying it, but what they're thinking is, are we okay with what just happened? Can a woman speak like that? It was so obvious that I had crossed a line. It was equally obvious that everybody knew it, We just weren't sure what we had just tripped over. There was something very uncomfortable going on in the room. We have this idea that there are gendered characteristics. Women are this and men are that. It's clearly articulated in conservative churches. It's even said that it's God's given design. Men are rational and analytical and brave and competitive and assertive. Women are nurturing, compassionate, and they're supposed to be gentle and quiet. They give us specific passages, right? First Peter 3 tells us we're to be gentle and quiet. That passage doesn't include assertiveness. I've been taught that. Some of you have been taught that too. I wonder now, looking back, what do the theologians that say that do with the, the, the Galatians passage about the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever thought about that? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. It says in Galatians, 
But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Listen to the words. If you had to put them in a category of femininity or masculinity, which category would you put them in? Actually, which category would your church put them in? Listen to them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oops, there it is. And self-control. The fruit of the Spirit sounds like a list we have for women, except the fruit of the Spirit isn't gendered. It's for all of God's people. And there I was at the staff meeting, using my assertive voice, which is what God gave me. It's how I'm wired. And then I tripped over the wire, and so did they. It took a few seconds, but then we all recovered. After all, we knew each other. Steve and I had been friends with these men for years. I mean, we had had them to our house for dinner. And that evening when I went home from that staff meeting, I said to Steve, what was that that we experienced today in the staff meeting? And he responded, oh, Jackie, you know, you just have to take time to, like, earn their trust, to be heard. And I was like, that is bull. You know they know me. They didn't know what to do with my being assertive in the office. That didn't fit their paradigm for what a woman was supposed to do on staff at their church. This happens to us. These invisible tripwires, we don't even know they're there until we cross them. And then we know something's off. It happens to us. And by the way, it happened to her in Scripture. That tilt head thing, long pause, it happened to her too. Mary, her story's found in Luke 10, 38 through 42. I suspect you know it. It's a very familiar story. It's the story about Mary and Martha Unfortunately, you and I have been told the stories about having a quiet time at five in the morning, ideally, right? Or we've been told we need to be less like Martha, always so busy, 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 and more like Mary, who's into prayer and contemplation. Here's what I want you to know. This story about Mary and Martha has nothing to do with a quiet time or prayer or contemplation or whether we're too busy. It's so much more than that. Here's how the passage reads. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, I have to pause here and say something. What I want you to see is that this is not a story with three people in it, because when we've heard this story before, we tend to picture in our minds a story where there's Mary, Martha, and Jesus. This is a story about way more people than just three. Jesus is with his disciples. We know there's at least 12 disciples, male, And in Luke, previously, it speaks of there being 72 disciples traveling around with Jesus. So we don't know exactly how many people are there, but we know there's probably like 16 people in this story. It's definitely not just about Mary, Martha, and Jesus. There's more than three. There's a crowd. And they're descending on Martha's house, which, by the way, it mentions that Martha, Martha being mentioned first, Probably means she's the oldest. Probably means she's the head of the house. Yes, even though she has a brother. It's her house. She's responsible for what goes on in her house. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. I bet Martha was tired. 
I find it exhausting to cook for 16 people at Thanksgiving, don't you? And I've got a car to go get things and a grocery store to buy things and a stove that I can cook things on. And I know who's coming and when because I've invited them. But Martha didn't. It's an unexpected visit by more than 16 people. Yeah, Martha has reason to be tired. But I also suspect Martha is upset about more than not having help to cook the meal, which I'll get into in just a minute. So let me continue with the verse. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. Martha's busy preparing a meal. And what's Mary doing? Well, the text tells us she's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he's been saying. Now, you got to know that the kitchen is outside. They cook on a fire, and you don't want a fire in the house because it'll burn it down. And so the kitchen is outside. Mary is inside, most likely in the living room, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Very important statement. For a first century Jew or any ancient person, sitting at someone's feet would be a highly symbolic act. It would acknowledge the other person's higher education. For example, rabbinical students would typically sit at the feet of their rabbi as a way of expressing respect to the rabbi. Describing his own rabbinical training, the Apostle Paul says this, and listen to how similar it sounds to what was said about Mary. He says, I am indeed a Jew brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem. I am indeed a Jew brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. Did you get the phrase? It's used of Paul when he studied underneath the most famous rabbi of his time. The same words we read about Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning like a disciple at the feet of a rabbi. Learning what? How to shop? How to decorate? Who's got the best hair salon in town? I don't think so. We don't really know for sure. But if we watch Jesus, just watch him move around and what he talks about in the Gospels, we know that the thing he talks about the most, yeah, it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. He talks a lot about the kingdom of God, the Torah, the law. I suspect they also talked about the chickens they were going to eat and how sore their feet were. And maybe they're even asking Jesus, how did you walk on water? Like, how'd that thing happen? This, this thing that Mary is doing is considered the highest form of learning in Judaism. Yes, a rabbi's disciple was expected to learn in quietness and full submission. It all went, and if it all went according to plan, the end result would be the student, the disciple, would know all that this rabbi knew about the Torah and the law. Now, what's striking about the story in Luke is that first century Judaism, women weren't allowed to study under a rabbi or learn the Torah. And yet there's Mary taking the posture of a disciple, learning at the feet of a rabbi, Rabbi Jesus. And where does all of this take place? Well, it takes place in male space. Ancient Near Eastern culture, there was male space and female space. Guess where the female space was? Yeah, in the kitchen. Public space was male space. And that's where rabbis taught their disciples, out in the public. And women weren't supposed to be in male space. A woman was considered sexually promiscuous if she roamed in public space unaccompanied. We see this even today, right? In fundamentalist Islamic cultures, male and female space distinctions applied out in the public and even within the home. 
During Mary's time, generally the home was considered private space, but if men came to the home, they would establish a male space within the home. Martha was cooking, and Mary was in the living room. Male space. Think about who's with her. It's Jesus and the disciples. A whole lot of men. I want you to just picture those male disciples. Can you see their body language? I mean, they've got some heads tilted, don't they? There's some long pauses. They're jabbing each other, right? When Jesus isn't looking, doesn't he know she's not supposed to be in here? It happens in the boardroom, and it happened here in the text, in Martha and Mary's living room. We're uncomfortable when a woman moves into male space or demonstrates what we think are male characteristics. We're uncomfortable. Yep, that's what's happening to Mary. It's what's happened and happens to you and me too. Tilted heads, pauses. But to be fair to the men, it's not just the guys doing the tilting here because Martha's tilting her head too. You and I know this, don't we? We know that women can also become very uncomfortable when we cross over into male space and exhibit or exhibit what's considered male characteristics. I think it's an issue that you and I need to talk about in one of our future episodes, so we will. But right, for right now, let's just stick with Martha. Martha's tilting her head at Jesus and Mary. Now, how do I know this? Because when I studied in Israel, I learned that homes are built really close together, and they have a small pathway, like a walkway between them that you can walk around the village. The windows are open. There's no glass, no shutters, just holes to look out or in. And you can bet people looked in. It was common practice that when a visitor arrived in a home, everyone would pull up to the window and peek in and join in on the festivities. I think we see this very same thing happening in Luke 7 when the woman walks into Simon's house and anoints Jesus' feet. People are peeking in that haven't been invited in. I think that story is happening here in Mary and Martha. It happened, and it still happens. I saw this when I was preaching in Africa. The whole village heard that a woman was kind of preached for the first time, and so they all pushed and shoved into these little windows to peek in and see the whole festivities that was going on. And let me remind you, Mary is in male space. Her presence there is going to bring shame upon the family. And who's responsible for what goes on in the home? Martha. Yeah, Martha. Knowing that, now picture her coming into the room. She's tired from all the work. She should be. But she's also miffed. Her reputation is on the line. I can see her. She's Jewish. She's got to have her hands on her hips. Jesus, why don't you make Mary come and help me? Notice she doesn't even dress Mary. Notice she dressed Jesus. Why? Why does she call out Jesus? Because right now, he's the authority in the room, and he should know better. And what does Jesus say? My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. What did Mary discover? How to have a quiet time? Nope. Nope. There's nothing quiet going on in this room. There's at least 16 people having a very lively discussion about kingdom stuff. Not a quiet time. Not about not being busy. Nope. Mary, what has she discovered? 
She's chosen this one thing, this most important thing, in spite of all the angry looks of disgust, despite how others in the community would view her, she's willing to cross religious, cultural, gendered lines so that she can fully participate in Jesus's mission and bringing his kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. And Jesus says, that won't be taken from her. And I wonder if those of us who have found ourselves in male spaces, we've tripped over those wires, and it's uncomfortable and confusing, and yes, at times it's very painful. If we can take some comfort from this story, a story where Jesus provides an opportunity for a woman, for women, to come into spaces and places that were traditionally male. And he knows that how he made us in his image, that we are to be like him. And he's inviting us in and he says, it won't be taken from you. When I started tripping over those wires, those invisible wires, I needed to understand why I was experiencing this. And people's answers to the Bible verses just wasn't cutting it for me. And so I started chasing and researching like crazy what it means to have gender stereotypes and gender bias and how we socialize boys and girls. And I came to realize that much of the stuff we're taught in the church about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man is actually not in the Bible. Rather, it's in our culture. And you probably already know many of this kind of stuff because you may have studied this in college, but I didn't. So I had to go out and find it on my own. I learned that like we raise boys to win, to be king of the hill, so to speak. Michael Kimmel is a leading sociologist in masculinity and at Stony Brook in New York. And he lists these attitudes, values, and traits that, are, uh, that compose what it means to be a man in America today. Listen to what he says. Boys don't cry. It's better to be mad than sad. Take it like a man. He who has the most toys when he dies wins. Just do it or ride or die. Size matters. I won't even go into that one. I don't stop to ask for directions. Nice guys finish last. It's all good. It's interesting, Nate Pyle, who wrote a book called Man Enough, says that there really isn't much difference between what the culture and the church teaches about manhood. He says both teach that men are, among other things, strong, independent, even though the scripture tells us we should be interdependent. We teach that men are, among other things, strong, independent, self-reliant, able to provide, unemotional, decisive. By the way, that unemotional thing, oof, causes all kinds of problems when we marry you guys. See, girls are allowed to express emotions. We're actually taught to be emotional. Boys are taught to repress emotions. Don't cry like a girl. Man it up. Suck it up. Turns out the only emotions we allow men to have, I bet you can guess, anger and jealousy. Yep, that hasn't really served us very well, has it, ladies? I don't know if you know this, but God has emotions. Jesus wept. He wept over loss and pain and death. We're his image bearers. We were made to be emotional beings. So when I think about that, I realize we've done a, a tremendous disservice to our boys. In fact, if we really want to think about it, we've actually dehumanized them by expe expecting them to repress emotions. 
you know, emotional IQ is now a very important factor. It's recognized as a very important, important factor in the workplace. And you and I know, <laughs> we already know this, it helps create healthy relationships. Don McPherson is a, a quarterback of the NFL and Canadian Football League, which means nothing to me because I don't really watch football. I know. I live in Texas, and I could get shot for that. But in his later years, he's um, giving his work to reconstructing masculinity. And he says, we don't raise boys to be men. We raise them not to be women. And what he means by this is that men do not define themselves by what they are. They define themselves by what they are not. And what they are not to be is female or effeminate or gay. And men have to constantly fight to keep their masculinity at all times to prove that they are not a sissy or a girl or gay. A man is emasculated when he loses to another man, whether that be a job promotion, a game they're playing, or a woman for a date. This is just a little bit of what I've been learning about how we raise boys to become men. Now, knowing that, let me ask you, what do you think happens when a woman moves into those traditional spaces at the workplace or at home or in the community? Worse yet, what if she outshines him? You know the answer to that, don't you? Because it's happened to you. You tripped over it, didn't you? Yeah, I have too. When I was hired on staff, I I inherited a well-established women's Bible study. We were on this ride of growth. Like at the height of my time being there, we had almost 1,000 women in our Bible study. And I was training women to teach the Bible consistently. At one time, we had seven teachers on the teaching team and a women's Bible study. And we were writing Bible study curriculum and publishing that curriculum. And somehow, I don't even know how, because we actually never marketed it, it started being sold all over the country and even internationally. And we had people from around the country calling us and asking us how we were doing it. Of course, I didn't have a clue. There was a buzz about our ministry nationally, but there was also a buzz in our church. The women who were attending the Bible study, they wanted their husbands to come too. They asked me if they could. I wasn't really good on the idea. I didn't really like it. Because I knew that in the conservative evangelical world, Women are less apt to speak up about theology and Bible when men are present. And I long for women to be empowered by hearing their voice speak about Jesus and Scripture and how that intersects with what they're experiencing in real life. Yeah, women were asking, could their husbands come to our Bible study? And I just simply said, yeah, they've got the wrong hormones. But I knew we were in trouble when the men in our church started harassing our men's pastor. They were saying comments like, why isn't our Bible study as good as the women's? Why isn't it as big as the women's? They were saying that kind of stuff to a man leading the men's groups. And I got to tell you, I knew immediately nothing good was going to come out of that. I knew. I'd been studying. I'd experienced it. Men do not like to be upped by a woman. And so I scheduled dinner with the men's pastor And I give him a lot of credit. He was man enough to admit that the comparison had been very difficult for him. It had actually been emasculating. And I got to be honest, I was really angry that my brother was belittled like that. that, like, Like this kid being teased in the playground, emasculated. It just shouldn't be that way. And then I shouldn't have to be less so that he can feel more. 
nor should he feel less because a woman is succeeding. Because quite frankly, this being in it for Jesus, it's not a competition. It's a collaboration. We need everyone in the battle, using everything they've got right where they are to advance the kingdom of God. There's no time, and there should be no place for sibling rivalry. Jesus deserves more from us than that. I remember I attended a luncheon. It was hosted by the seminary in which I graduated from, and they had invited a bunch of us female graduates. And the question was posed to us, how can we better equip women for ministering in the church? And I was fascinated as I observed the room. There was this silence, a nervous silence. We women who had masters at a graduate and graduated from seminary were afraid to speak up and really say what we thought. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, for crying out loud, say it. We're all thinking the same thing. We need to be better equipped at how to work together as men and women. Finally, someone said it very softly. And then the prof's response irritated the hell out of me. He threw out the sex thing, you know, the Billy Graham, or today we might call it the Michael Pence rule, where a woman can't be alone with a woman in the car or at lunch because, you know, the sex thing. We must be careful. We don't want moral failure in the pulpits. That's the biggest concern. And I agree. No, no, we don't. And yes, we're going to have to talk about the sex thing. We're going to have episodes talking about the sex thing because we've got to talk about this danger romance narrative. It's the only narrative we have that's being taught in our churches, despite the fact that the brother-sister narrative is the most dominant story told in the New Testament. Again, so much to talk about in the future episodes. The point is, I was listening to him and thought, I've been on staff long enough to know that there's way more to this than just the sex thing. There's keeping power in power, and there are gender bias and constructs at play. And I knew that because our staff used to be all male, and they had kind of gotten comfortable with it being like that, kind of like a boys club, if you will. They were used to having offline meetings at places like the Cigar Lounge or getting gifts for the staff, you know, at a boy for doing a good job. They'd get tickets to the Cowboy game or a steak place and conversations, you know, what they talked about and how they said it. Well, when we showed up, that all had to change. Yeah. Did you know that most of our top leadership positions in the United States are still held by men? I know that's not a surprise to you. We are making progress, but in general, well, in fact, in the conservative evangelical world, 90% of top leadership is male. That's a lot. It's changing. Like 24% of the C-suites are now filled by women, and 25% of CEOs in the Fortune 500 are female, but we've got a ways to go. Because if we're really honest, women, the room is still mostly full of men, crowd of men. And more and more as we move into the, these areas that are, are traditionally male or take on, you know, what has been thought for, for centuries about male characteristics versus female characteristics, as we do this, we're going to experience some tripping and head tilting and long pauses. Several years ago, I attended the Missio Alliance's board meeting in Chicago, and there were men from different Protestant traditions, seminary professors, pastors, and then there were two of us women leaders. And all of the men in the room, they had done the hard work of wrestling down the scriptures, um, scriptures that seemed to restrict the women in what they could and couldn't do. 
in the church, in the home, in the workplace. And they had landed that women can basically do anything. They were all inclusive, all female inclusive. You can do whatever you, you are gifted to do. And the question they posed to us two women was, we've worked through the theology. We are all inclusive. So why is it that we still have so few of women in top leadership positions? And I was so glad they asked. And I answered, because you think it's about theology, but it's not. And I proceeded to share about gender constructs and how they will stay stuck until we see them, identify them, and change them. And bam, my work was done. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.